We'll try to get started on time. I want to uh, thank you all for coming to the first session of the Global Health Missions Conference. I think this is going to be a great weekend, and I'm praying that God's going to be here and uh, teach us all something. Uh, I am someone who likes to walk around when I speak, but unfortunately they got me tethered. So if I suddenly walk and you see me jerked, uh, that's what's happened. Um, let's uh, open in prayer, please. Our most precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you indeed loved us enough to send your Son to die for us. May that be what truly compels us. May that be our motivation for living. As we open our hearts and our minds to the things that we're going to learn this weekend, we pray that you would be in the midst of it and you'll be speaking to our heart. Anything that I have to say that is of me should soon be forgotten, but that which is of you, we pray, will stick. We ask these things in your name. Amen. I'm Bruce Steffes. I'm a general surgeon who's the CEO of the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. I'm going to spend a couple of minutes here talking about what the PACS is for many of you that don't really know and, and what it works and why it works or why it doesn't work. And then we're going to spend some time talking about really the lessons that we've learned and what we might do differently if we did it again or if you're thinking about similar programs in other areas, uh, the kinds of questions that come up. I've gotten, after being involved with it since 2003, I've gotten to the point that I know very few of the answers. I know a lot more of the questions, uh, but I'm not sure what the answers are. Uh, and yet God's doing some amazing things, and I think we'll just uh, look at that. Uh, the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons is a commission of the uh, Christian Medical and Dental Association. And now, what does that mean? It means we're under the legal umbrella, the financial accountability of CMDA. Uh, they give us no money, okay? So um, they pat us on the back and say, we've got to help you when we can, and that's uh, where it functions. It is uh, multinational. Uh, we're going to talk about the number of countries that we're in right now, and it is, uh, I don't like to word, use the word non-denominational or trans-denominational. We, we cover a great number of different uh, denominations, and so that in and of itself creates some issues, uh, because certainly the Baptists don't want to talk to the Methodists who don't want to talk to the Presbyterians, and how you, how you settle all that uh, sometimes becomes an issue uh, when you're trying to disciple people at the same time that you train them. We're in five countries right now. That's uh, Gabon, Cameroon, Ethiopia, and Kenya, and then in East, East Africa in a country called Bangladesh. Uh, we're working there. Um, we have six programs and seven different hospitals that we're using, and we're pleased that uh, Galmi Hospital in Niger is coming on in July of 2012. They were actually one of our very first programs, but had to close very rapidly because the missionary surgeon left, and uh, so we're glad to have them back, and they'll be starting our main goal is to train African physicians, but not just to train them, but to disciple them, uh, to create, not all are going to be missionary surgeons, but to create Amer uh, African physicians who have a full understanding of the kingdom and what it means and how that translates into practice and how they should be practicing perhaps differently than they are. That's our whole goal. Not as easy said as done. Our vision, we would love to see African surgeons living uh, the gospel and ministering to the sick. Simple but profound. Our mission is to train and to disciple African surgeons to glorify God and to provide excellent, compassionate care in, to those who need it the most. We have a short-term goal. By 2020, we would like to disciple at least 100 physicians. Now, you think 100, big deal. 20 of the countries in Africa do not have 20 physicians. 
And so we hope by this time we will be graduating as many as 20 a year. We'll be putting out a country's worth at a time. If we do that for a while, we will make a difference. Uh, but that's our, it's a modest goal. And, of course, with surgical education, it takes a long time. It takes a while to get five years to get through and to get programs going and up to swing. We've graduated 20 at the present time. It started at a meeting in Brackenhurst International Conference Center just outside of Nairobi. In 1994 uh, and 1996, Dave Thompson, who is wandering around here if you run into him, uh, had the, the realization that if he dropped dead tomorrow, once the ripples went away, he hadn't really accomplished much. And so he talked to many, many hospitals uh, there at this conference, and in 1996 they decided they were going to train physicians. Now, you all know the story of the little red hen who wanted to make bread and everybody wanted to eat the bread, but nobody wanted to help. Uh, same thing happened here. Uh, ten hospitals were all in favor of it. And exactly one hospital started. And so um, that's kind of the story with all these things. If you're interested in doing these kind of programs, there'll be lots of people who are thrilled for you to do the work. Uh, but it's going to be difficult to actually get somebody to help you. And so that was one of the biggest struggles. Uh, we're now 15 years into this. And these are four of the guys who were in that original group. We just had a, a meeting in Chicago and uh, celebrated our 15th birthday. Excuse me. Here's what God has done since that time. Uh, the growth has been phenomenal. Uh, as of this uh, coming uh, January, we're going to have 40 residents that we're training. Uh, that makes us as big as most university programs here in the United States. And as you'll see later, our budget is somewhat less than that. Uh, but uh, God is uh, continuing to open things up, and we'll talk about the growth. But this is all God's glory, not ours. At the present time, this is what PACS looks like. We've talked about this. We do have some uh, training programs, one in uh, uh, training sites, one in South Africa. And uh, we're hoping to... O start a new program in uh, Manufa, Egypt, uh, but this is where we are. We're a little bit in, uh, in West Africa or Central Africa and a little bit on East Africa. The Pan-African Academy is a strange beast. Uh, it does not have, uh, when, when they tried to talk me into becoming the CEO in 2006, I sat for two hours and told them why this would never work. Uh, it, it has everything wrong from a business standpoint that I can possibly think of, uh, and yet God is, is using it. PAX doesn't run anything. We don't own anything. Nobody works for us. What is happening here is this is a partnership by drawing together the African physicians who wish to be trained, the African uh, missionary surgeons who wish to help, the hospitals themselves, uh, Christian Medical and Dental Association and their help, uh, the donors, those are always helpful, uh, the short-term faculty, and Loma Linda University, who is giving us our academic credentials. With all of those together, we're kind of a capstone. We're kind of holding the whole thing together. And so without that partnership, it doesn't work. We're not big enough. We're not powerful enough to, to make it work. All those pieces need to work. And unfortunately, if any of them bail out, a program can go under. And we've had that happen to us once or twice as well. General surgery in Africa is not general surgery in North America. General surgery in North America, as you know, is abdomen, a little breast, maybe a little head and neck, a little trauma, and whatever else nobody else wants to do. In Africa, it's skin and it's contents. And so the general surgeons are going to be doing neurosurgery and urology and ENT and OBGYN and whatever else that they think they can do. Uh, we're not trained like that. And so the, the missionary surgeons that have gone out there uh, come out of an American training program. And so suddenly they're an orthopod. Suddenly they're a uh, neurosurgeon. Suddenly they're a urologist. If it wasn't for the short-term faculty, we would 
not be able to pull this off. It's people coming from anywhere from two months to six months, dropping their practices here and coming and working with the residents and training the residents that makes such a difference. And so they'll come and they'll teach orthopedics and they'll teach ENT and they'll teach urology and they'll teach orthopedic or other specialties. And uh, that's how it works. Uh, again, they are all paying for this out of their own uh, pocket. Uh, last year, they gave us almost nine work years worth of extra time. And so this is the phenomenal project uh, that uh, is happening. One of the issues that we'll talk about a little bit is this whole idea of credentialing. Originally, when we started, we weren't planning to credential anything. As you may know, most mission hospitals are on the other side of nowhere. Uh, they deliberately go there because, first of all, that's where the need is, and secondly, uh, nobody looks at you too carefully in terms of all the credentialing and all that sort of stuff. And so many mission hospitals are way out in nowhere. Uh, the problem that we had is that we had originally thought that we would train some of the surgeons and they would stay in those areas because their accreditation would be no good anywhere else. And they would have to stay with us. It was a little personal kind of way to, to make sure that they stayed there. And uh, we became a victim of our own success. Uh, our residents became the best trained people in the entire country. Uh, or at least amongst the best. And so we've had to go and seek accreditation. When we started this uh, in uh, 1997, if you would have said that within any amount of time that we would have been accepted by the African College of Surgeons, we would have all laughed in your face. I said that wouldn't happen. Uh, 2006, when I came on, I started talking about maybe this was important, literally had the faculty and commissions laughing at us, and uh, we signed an MOU last year. And so God has opened up these phenomenal opportunities so that these guys can get accreditation. Any one of you, if you had worked for four or five or six years, busting your butt, you'd want something on the wall. So do they, okay? And uh, so God is opening this up. We're, we're still working on the West African College of Surgeons, but we do have one with the College of Surgeons of East, Central, and South Africa. And that is as true a miracle as I know. Loma Linda uh, is our accrediting agency. Uh, they are the ones who keep us academically uh, uh, solid, and we appreciate their help. As I mentioned, we have 20 grads since 2001. There are two that are in further training in pediatric surgery in Kenya. We have 13 that are serving at Christian hospitals and five that are serving in underserved government hospitals. All of them are in rural Africa. This gets the attention of every minister of health that ever comes because they can't keep their people there. I had an interesting conversation with the minister in Ethiopia, minister of uh, medicine in Ethiopia, and uh, he said, uh, when, I, when I was telling him about this, he said, this is fantastic. We'd like you to help train our people. And I told him, that I'd be glad to. I'd be glad to give him everything we've got. I'll give him every resource I've got. There's no problem whatsoever, except it won't work. And he just looked at me. He said, well, why won't it work? I said, because these people are staying in this environment because they're doing what Jesus Christ has asked them to do. Otherwise, they're going to look for money and education because their kids aren't being educated. They're not being paid well. They're staying there because it's the way they look at the world and what they think God wants them to do. He just kind of looked at me for a few seconds. He said, you're right. And that was the rest of the conversation. It never, never went any further. In order to be a PAX resident in Africa, the, the normal training program is, is that it's an academic degree. Okay, you get a master's in surgery and so forth, and you pay tuition for that so that uh, you have to have either the money in your pocket to pay the tuition for the four years or you get a government subsidy or rarely something else might pay for that. Uh, we are using kind of an American paradigm in that we're actually paying them. We pay them a living stipend so that they and their family can live. We take care of their books, their education. But in exchange, 
much like the military scholarships that we have here in the country, they owe us a year of service. And so if they've trained with us for five years, they owe us a year for every one of those years, and we will sit and talk with them about the best place, their people group, their language groups, their preferences, et cetera, and try to find a hospital where they can function. Because what we're trying to do is not fill a slot, but to create an environment in which they will succeed for the rest of their life. I'd be very happy if these guys stayed there for the next 30 or 40 years, okay? They probably won't, but that's okay with me, too. Uh, we do have some problems that sometimes they're so good. Uh, several of these guys have been invited to join the respective Ministry of Health in their country. And uh, we don't consider that a necessarily a failure. Most of them have not done it yet. But if they did, having somebody who loves the Lord and is honest and thinks well in the ministry doesn't sound like a bad output as far as we're concerned. We have a couple who have already been promised uh, university professorships when they get finished. And so, again, we don't consider that bad either. Uh, certainly we can disciple uh, within the uh, marketplace as well as we can in a mission hospital. So those are all acceptable outcomes to us. Uh, what we really want in a continent where there's not many surgeons is a place where God is being honored and good medicine is being practiced, and that's kind of our ultimate goal in this. Here's where our countries uh, of, the, of our present residents come from these various countries. Uh, you can see it's kind of scattered all over. Uh, the only thing I don't like about this map is there's too much white, okay? So I like less white. Uh, this is where they're practicing. I want more blue on that map too, okay? Matter of fact, I'd have no problem if the whole thing was blue, uh, and that's kind of my goal. As of right now, we have a vision. We have nine mission hospitals that would like to join us tomorrow, but they can't. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. The main reason they can't is for us to open a program, the bare minimum are two general surgeons who wish to put their career in medical missions okay, and teach. Without that, we can't open a program. Now, each of the hospitals also will require about $400,000 or so on an average to, to build some housing and to bring them up to snuff and so forth. Money's never the problem. It's people who are responding to God. That's the issue always, and that's what we need. If I had 18 people tomorrow, we could more than triple our present output uh, immediately. And so if all of those were on board, that's what it would look like. But again, there's a problem. All of North Africa, all of Central Africa, all of Far Africa, we've got a long ways to go. God's given us a vision for an entire continent. You have to realize how big this is. North America, India, China, Argentina, Jamaica. Throw a few other small countries in there, and that's the size of Western, Af Western Europe. That's the size of, eight of uh, Africa. It's a huge continent. And there's not much impact. These are the places that would like to come on board. So we have Tanzania, Cameroon, Angola, Egypt, Zimbabwe, Togo, Nigeria, and uh, another hospital in Cameroon that we'd like to start. How does this work? Everybody that works for PACS is a volunteer, with the exception of our administrative staff. We have two part-time administrators help keeping the paper straight going. I work for free. All the missionaries work for free. All the commissioners work for free. Okay? Um, how will we fund it? 95% of the money up until the last year or so has come from individuals that have gone, they've served, they've seen what a difference this makes, and they come home and they write a check. And it's a relatively small number of people. Uh, people are giving very sacrificially because they see why this works and how it works. 
Uh, we have recently had a couple of foundations that are stepping up. One of the problems is if you put Christian and doctor in the same sentence, you don't get money. Okay, and so um, and of course the Gates Foundation and sort of stuff will have nothing to do with Christian work. Uh, most of those big organizations will not. But uh, recently, a couple of Christian foundations have stepped up and they're starting to to help us a little bit. We've got a ways to go. Uh, one of the things that we tried for years was if you needed a surgeon, if your hospital would help support at least their living stipend, we would let them go back to that place and we'd throw in all the rest of the money. And, and that so far hasn't really been too, too successful, uh, largely because the hospitals can't come up with the money for the stipend either. Okay? The hospital does provide the housing, the utilities, and the health care, which is no small piece. Of course, they get to charge for all their, their work too, and so that helps offset that. Right now, it's costing us approximately $90,000 to train an African physician to be an, a surgeon in Africa. Somewhere between seventy dollars and $90,000 a year is what it takes to have an American or a European general surgeon go to the field for a year. By the time you throw in everything that they need to have uh, with that as well. So for roughly the cost of one surgeon for one year, I've got somebody that I can train for five years. He will stay there for his lifetime. He knows the language. He's not going to be whining about culture shock. Uh, he's not going to be uh, quitting and going home. He's going to stay forever and make a tremendous difference. And at the same time, he's going to be truly increasing the capacity of function within that country. Our budget this present year is $580,000. Okay? I would like you to go to University of Louisville and suggest that they train all of their residents for $500,000. It isn't going to happen. Okay? Uh, you'd be hard-pressed to get one surgeon for that price, let alone everybody else. God's doing some amazing things with this. We are pinching the pennies as tightly as we know how. Um, we can copper plate an entire rowboat with one penny. Okay. So what are the issues that we've gotten into? Why does this work? Why does it not work? What are the struggles that we have? Because we have a lot of people coming in. I've been trying to encourage people for years. Okay, if it's working for surgery, it should work for family practice. It should work for internal medicine. It should work for pediat, uh, you know, other specialties. Uh, but what questions do you have with this? Why does it work? Why does it not work? I think one of the major questions that you're going to have to have in whatever country is decide whether you're going to ask for permission or forgiveness. Are you going to get permission from the government beforehand before you start? Or are you going to go ahead and do what we did and ask for forgiveness? Both of them are problematic, and we'll talk about those in just a moment. Second question that you have to get into, are you training apprentices? Are you training full residents? Are you training somebody who's fully qualified or somebody that just does what you do? Those are different questions. And are we going to be training professionals? Or are we going to be doing task sharing? Are we going to try to train less than what you are to get the job done? Let's look at a couple of those things. What about this uh, permission versus forgiveness issue? In Kenya, when they started training for pediatric, uh, for, excuse me, for family practice, I think it was, what, 12 years, John? 14 years, something like that, uh, before they actually were able to start their first training because bureaucracy being what bureaucracy is, it was bureaucracy. And so it got in the way and, uh, and nothing really happened. Um, in Kenya, you probably couldn't have gotten away with doing anything else other than that, though, very easily. Um, if you are in countries that have established medical, tight medical hierarchies and so forth, you're going to be shut down very quickly if you try to train anybody in any kind of significant fashion. 
uh, in the countries where we tend to start, it worked out pretty well uh, because they don't have any training programs. And, frankly, we were on the other side of nowhere. Uh, nobody really looked at us until it kind of got going. And uh, we did have to go with our hat in hand and apologize and, and ask for forgiveness. Um, again, it kind of depends when you're starting what's going to work in your country and what's appropriate. And part of that's philosophical um, as well. What is most important on either side of the fence is you've got to have relationships with the important people in the country. One of the problems that the mission hospitals are rather notorious for is they're off by themselves. They don't get involved with the local surgical societies or medical societies. They don't invite people back and forth. They don't take the time off because, after all, they're busy. Uh, and this is an important concept. You have to realize that many of these kinds of relationship-building exercises, getting to know people, yes, it pulls you away from your work. Yes, it may mean that somebody doesn't get care at your hospital. Yes, yes, and yes, but from a strategic standpoint, it will do more for your hospital and the relationships than anything else that you do. So I would encourage all of you, if you're going there, get involved, make friends. Uh, they don't have to be just the Christian ones either. But look at them as professionals. Look at them as friends. Uh, realize that this is now your country as well. Do what you can to improve the infrastructure and the teaching and the abilities within that country. Everything, at least in Africa, is based on relationships. So no matter how good you are, if you haven't got those relationships, you're going to pay a price. And it's not until you establish them that you're going to get, get by that. In much of the southern world, it's that way, Okay. Uh, in, in many of uh, Latin America as well, it's, it's all based on relationships. Uh, and if you don't have them, you don't there. Now, one of the issues that we got into and that we've had to struggle with is that when we, since we were not approved, you have to ask who wants to come to an unapproved program. And so this had to be somebody who God, in their mind, was calling them. They had to be willing to come here knowing that they may put in five years of hard work and the only thing they got for it was the skills. They're not going to have a diploma. They're not going to be recognized. They're always going to be looked down upon. They're always going to be sneered at. Uh, they're going to be like the people who do the beachhead. They're going to die so that the people behind them can carry the, carry the battle. Okay, And so that's an issue for them. A lot of them are still at one point struggling with some bitterness. Well, why do all these new guys who came along, why are they getting accreditation and we didn't? Uh, they have to really understand that this is something that is God's demand on them, their sacrifice for something to, to go forward. And so I, I have great sympathy with them. Uh, I don't know what to do about it necessarily, but, but it's a real issue, and, and that will raise its head uh, as you go along. And, of course, they may not get the same. They may be equally qualified. They may be better, but they're not going to get the same employment as your following trainees would. So that could be an issue. What's this? Uh, what do I mean when this apprenticeship versus a residency? In an apprenticeship, I am teaching you to do it the way I do it. I can't teach you to do it any other way because I don't do it that way. And so since, of course, I'm wonderful, that's okay, but it doesn't mean that it's going to fulfill uh, – all the training that they need to have. They're not going to be, if I'm weak in urology, they're going to be weak in urology. If I don't know anything about orthopedics, uh, then they're not going to know a whole lot about orthopedics. 
And so a residency is different. We have a lot of people, well, why do you have to bother with all this testing? Why do you have to have all these credentials? Why do you have to do the examining? Why do you have to do this? Why do you have to do that? And the answer is because we're trying to go to the standards that are international standards of a residency, the kind of thing that are set by outside people. Uh, if I don't do it, the reason I don't do it is either I can't do it or I don't think it's important. But that isn't the same thing that the Minister of Health or other surgeons might think is important. So this whole is- issue, you have to kind of settle within your own mind, and we still struggle with that. Uh, we have people that have been doing it, program directors within our program there. They're still complaining. Well, why do we have to do it that way? I do it this way, and I'm fine. Yeah, but it's not a residency. The answer is if it's a residency. Now, the minute you do that then, of course, that means that one person can't do this. And so you start to talk about large numbers of people to start coming in and help you. So a true residency is a whole lot more work. It's setting up, you know, the, all the curriculums and all the standards and all the metrics. It means that uh, in order for you to have good assessment exams, you're going to have to have uh, not one or two people writing an exam, but 10 or 15 or 20 in their areas of specialty and, uh, and so forth and so on. So it becomes a, a huge amount of work, and it, it's no longer just as simple, well, I'm going to train somebody. And, of course, the higher the professional level that you want to train, the more resources go along with this and more standards and so forth. There is a big push in Africa, as elsewhere, because of the huge deficits in healthcare workers to do what's known as task shifting. That would be basically you take something that a physician might do in this country and you have the nurses do it, and something the nurses might do, you train a community health worker to do, and something that a community health worker might do, you, you shove it down, all downstream. Um, I think what's important to realize is that that sounds like a wonderful idea, but there's a lot of intrinsic problems with it. And we'll talk about those in just a second. I think what is critical is that it shouldn't be called task shifting. It should be task sharing. Task shifting means it's now your problem. Task sharing means I'm still involved. And so if I'm the most highly trained specialist, I still have to continue on with accountability, with training, et cetera, as we go. There have to be multiple people trained. One of the things they was saying, well, we'll just train a mess of community workers. Well, that's fine until you have a community worker who gets into trouble. Who does he help with? So it's got to be a hierarchy. There's got to be some referral hospitals, tertiary, secondary people that can be involved. Now, one of the issues that we have is virtually every mission hospital that I know of has found two or three people in their operating room who are really technically wizards. Um, you will have uh, people that uh, are better surgeons than the visiting surgeons. Uh, they really have this ability, but they are not professionals. And that has come back and bitten every hospital that I know that have done this. Because what has happened is they begin to think, well, I'm every bit as good as a professional, so they'll steal a few supplies or buy a few supplies and do surgery in their house or do it somewhere else, and somebody always dies. That story just happens time and time and time again. So if you're going to be training task shifters or task shares, there's got to be some sort of literally national recognition of what can they do, what can't they do, someone to reinforce it, someone to draw the lines, and to build this kind of, if you're having trouble, you're not a bad person. The answer is ask for help. Okay, And so building that all in. So task shifting is a wonderful concept. It is, by definition, a Band-Aid because they are not well-trained people. And uh, that's an issue. Uh, They have to realize that if quality is your only metric, 
then task shifting doesn't work. If your point is you're willing to let them kill a few people in order to help a lot of people, which is literally what task shifting is about, then but then you have to start draw, drawing lines. And those are, those are tough philosophical issues, and I don't know the answers to them, but they're there. Now, I want to just kind of be honest with you. Uh, what are some of the mistakes that we made? If you're going to start your own program, uh, what, what things, you're crazy to make the same mistakes all over again. Uh, you can make your own mistakes. Those would be much more entertaining. So um, our biggest problem is we thought we could do it with too few people. Okay, And so we start out with one person at a training program and so forth, and what that was was a great way to kill yourself. Uh, they just worked themselves in the ground, got totally burned out. And so now we won't start a program without two people, and now we're thinking that's too few, and it may need to be three to really make it happen. Now the problem is, is that we're short of 18 surgeons already. How can I grab another 18 or 20 to fill in our programs? Those are the kind of the, the decisions you have to make. We underestimated the need for uh, actual academic experience and true training ability, true teaching ability. Uh, all of us in medicine have learned how to give rounds and lectures and so forth, but there's a long ways between doing that and doing it well and professionally and understanding exactly what you're happening. So now we're not going to take anybody as a program director who has not had at least some courses and preferably some hands-on experience on how to deal with a, with a difficult resident, how to uh, identify learning disorders, how to identify, you know, how to properly teach, uh, et cetera. So we, we're pushing that. Now, a lot of surgeons that we're talking to don't like that very much because, after all, God has called me and I've got to be there tomorrow. They're all surgeons. There's no question about that. Um, but getting them to step back and realize that if you have failed to prepare what you have done is prepared to fail, and we can't afford to have you fail. So we're going to have to help with preparation. Now, what that means is, is that some of this doesn't mean that you have to become a program director here in the United States. It does mean that you have to start being very intentional. I notice that a lot of you are medical students and residents. The answer is, if this is something that appeals to you, there are many things that you can start doing early on to start gaining that experience and go, go along. Uh, we got too eager. Uh, we believe what people told us. Oh, yes, our hospital will certainly do this, or, you know, we're certainly this, and uh, we approved some programs very early on. We have got some bad bruises out of that. Um, there's a different level of expectation with training. There's, a diff there's all sorts of cross-cultural cross issues and so forth. We're, we're going to try to be slower. Again, we look at the hu huge need. We know it's out there, and yet to go ahead and to fail spectacularly uh, teaches us some amazing lessons, but sometimes gives us some bad reputation in, in Christ's name, and we don't want that either. So we're, we're struggling, and we'll continue to make that mistake. Uh, one of the issues that we had is that um, if, you know, the classic thing is if you get two surgeons in a room, you've got three solid opinions. Um, we had our, a difficult uh, problem here that uh, our visions weren't all the same, and we often use the same words, but we didn't mean the same thing. And so talking about, is this a rural program? Is this an accreditation program? Is it, you know, all those kind of things, those, those areas of visions, how are we going to do it? How are we going to expand? Uh, do we get involved with uh, secular teaching? Do we not? All those things, everybody was convinced that, of course, if the other people were right thinking, they will agree with me. But that isn't how it turned out. And so, uh, again, understanding really what you're trying to do and think of the different scenarios helps a bit. We certainly didn't have good reputations or good uh, experiences with the societies and governments. Uh, God has gone before us, 
and has opened up some amazing doors, and, and he is working behind the scenes. But this still continues to bite us uh, a little bit. Um, one of the problems that we've had is struggling with the whole idea of who does God have in this program. You're all, you are all familiar with the match program, and you know how much work and time and effort you go in. I ran into one student the other day that interviewed at 21 places, you know. Um, our students don't have the option to do that. They don't, you know, this is kind of a long distance over a phone call. It's hard to get to know somebody and make a commitment for five years based on a phone call and a couple of letters. And we've had trouble with people sending us letters that were forged or were clearly dishonest, and they got there and they couldn't do the work and so forth. Interestingly enough, God has protected us. Uh, here in the United States, at least in surgery programs, you expect to lose 15% of your residents for various and sundry reasons. Uh, we're around 11%, so we're better, and, and we didn't get to have all the interviews, but uh, that's painful uh, when that happens. Uh, you spend a lot of time and effort and kind of screw up a whole training slot uh, when somebody fails. But we're still struggling with uh, how to find the right people. Uh, with a budget of 500000 bucks. we can't be in every newspaper and every radio station and get people uh, it's been God bringing them to us, which is not a bad way of doing it, but it makes us have to have faith, and that's, you know, that's kind of hard sometimes. Um, and then when we get them, how do you properly disciple them? Uh, there is all manner of cultural and tribal and things that are all underneath there, and, and frankly, sometimes we don't know what to do with it. And we have been disappointed. We've had a couple of people that have gotten through the program, and we would have told you they were fantastic, and they went out and just did a great number of things in a non-Christian uh, manner and have kind of embarrassed Pax and embarrassed the Lord. Uh, I'm leaving it up to him to make it, make it work out. But, you know, we're struggling with that. How do we disciple better? How do we make it real? Uh, we're not really trying to get missionary surgeons, but we're trying to make Christ real in their lives. How do, how do I make you do that? I can't do that very well. It's going to have to be the Holy Spirit working on that. But we're struggling with that. We underestimated the whole issue of culture shock. Uh, sometimes I think for some of us very naively, we figure that if they're from Africa, it must be they can fit in with any culture uh, in Africa. That, of course, that's obviously stupid if you think about it. Uh, but we've had people who really have struggled. Uh, they came from one tribal group, and they're with this other tribal group in another country, and sometimes in another language. And that culture shock has really uh, bothered them. In the, at the same time, of course, all of us from North America are struggling with our own culture shock, no matter how long we've been there. Uh, so you've got all those issues that, that put in there as well. Uh, one of the things that we kind of underestimated was the importance of infrastructure. We at the mission hospitals think we don't have much because it's not like what we have here in the United States. But for most of these African surgeons, it's more than they're ever going to have. And so when they go back to their very poor hospitals, they struggle with that. And they feel, well, I can't train, I can't teach, I can't. And so we're still struggling about what the right answer for that is. One thing that PACs can't do is take, handle the entire infrastructure problem of all of Africa. Uh, and so we're struggling you know, with, with how to properly do that. Um, we found that, um, you know, as we all know, if mama's not happy, nobody's happy. Uh, if your spouse isn't happy, that's a problem. And now, for both missionaries... And for these African missionaries, the person who's in medicine, they get into the hospital, and that culture, you can buy into that, and within a few weeks you're doing okay because you're actually accomplishing something. It's the spouse who's left outside of it, who's trying to figure out how to get along with the neighbors and how to buy stuff and way to go to the market. It's true for the Africans as well as it is for us. Uh, those, are, those are all issues, and we, we didn't really 
emphasize that as much as we could have and should have. We underestimated how important it was to have an Afghan administrator who really knew what he was doing and had, who had the right view and the right uh, aspect of things. Uh, two of the times we've left a program is because the administrator never got the grasp of what we were trying to do, despite our multiple conversations, and we just couldn't do it. We struggle with our academic paradigm. Again, most of Africa is either a British or a French paradigm, which is entirely different than the American competency-based thing. And so when we come up and we say, our guys are competent because they do X, Y, and Z, they look at us like, you idiot, you didn't do this and this and this and this. It's kind of hard to say, well, we don't believe you should have to do that. And so we're struggling with all that, that issue as well. Uh, our business model. Um, we are trying to be the American College of Surgeons and the American Board of Surgery and a mission agency all at once with one and a half people, okay? Uh, that doesn't work very well. Uh, one of the issues that I find is nobody works for me, uh, including the program directors. They've all kind of signed on and so forth, but I don't have either a carrot or a stick big enough to make them pay attention. If they don't want to pay attention, we get into trouble with that. Uh, finances are obviously. And, of course, the brain drain. The brain drain is real. We struggle. We do not let our residents train in Europe or in North America because it's so seductive. But we actually have a problem with short-term faculty coming and trying to seduce them to come to North America or to, to Europe, and that's not what we want to, to do. Um, there's different culturing expectations. So what, what does a Christian physician look like? Those are different. So we have to struggle with how does, what's the resident expect out of this thing. And uh, one of the very real issues that we run into is that many of the African churches look at hospitals not as a mission but as a way to make money. And so that is a significant paradigm difference that we struggle with. Um, and one of the other big issues that we struggle with is that everybody else who looks at it is convinced we should be doing it some other way. And uh, good people, good intelligent people, but it's amazing how sometimes literally vicious people can be about, well, I wouldn't do it that way. Well, step along and... Show me how it should be done, because I'm more than happy to have you here. Come on in, the water's fine. So, I, I do want to emphasize, what did we do right? Okay. First and foremost, as our organization, we are seeking God's direction. This is not our project. This is what God's doing. And it's a blast to sit there and watch what he pulls off when we just kind of sit there scratching our heads. We are trying very hard to stay focused on our core competency. Education is what we do, Period. I'm not trying to run a hospital. I'm not trying to do all these other things. Uh, it all needs to be done. If you feel strongly about it, step right along, and I'll help you do your, what God's called you to do. But we're trying to keep education uh, our importance. And one of the big, big issues, especially as North Americans, we will try to let perfect get in the way of good enough. And sometimes good enough is good enough. That's the best we can do. We're going to move ahead, ahead, let God take care of it, and then always keep excellence. We, we always want excellence in Christ's name but realize that we can't make it perfect. If we wait till it's perfect, we're never going to go anywhere. Any questions, any ideas, any, any uh, situations that that has brought to your mind? Does anybody have the right answer? I'd be glad to hear that. I think the PRISM survey, which is a big survey for the medical missionaries that just got posted, look on the CMDA website and look for the PRISM survey, uh, but uh, over two-thirds of the medical missionaries out there think that medical education is the highest priority for medical missions right now. And the nice thing about that is that can get you into any country in the world as a general rule. Now, you may have to go pretty deep, but, but you can do that. Uh, 
there are many countries, though, in which we need to get involved, but it's a long-term paradigm. You know, that's one of the struggles. We, we, we go to churches. We'd like you to support us. And they'll say, well, you know, what's our three-year plan? And the answer is we've got a 60-year plan. And they look at you like you're crazy. But that's what it's going to take. It's going to take literally generations of training the right people up to take this over uh, so that we can go on elsewhere. Comments? Questions? Yes, sir. We would love to. Uh, one of the problems that we have in Africa, because the brain drain is so bad that we're not always left with the sharpest knives in the drawer. Okay? And uh, even if you have a superb program here in the United States, most people aren't interested in academics or teaching. So it's identification of those right people, which are, frankly, a smaller percentage than we would like, and then teaching them how to do this. The other thing that we've brought up for discussion, we haven't gotten anywhere, is uh, haven't gone anywhere with it, but I still think it's the right plan. I just haven't figured out how to get there. Is I want these guys when they go to their hospitals, if they don't train some of these task shares, they're going to die. And so we're trying to going to work on a program to teach them how to do the task shifting in their environment and become the the local expert. But that's our ultimate goal, absolutely. It's just not as quick and fast as it you'd like it to be. Yes, ma'am. There's a spiritual accountability as well. Uh, God has given us, we feel, a limited amount of money and a little bit of training, and if they're not in the caliber, uh, an extra year or two of training will help them no matter where they are, but we don't feel that we have an obligation to continue someone who is not working on that. Now, what's exciting about these guys, I got an email from one of them a few months ago, and he had done a, a pancreas case, you know, a Whipple. And so everybody, oh, Whipple, yeah, you know. Um, and, that, and I thought that's what he was excited about. That wasn't what he was excited about. He had led two people to the Lord on rounds. That's what he was excited about. That's what excites me about this. Uh, I was on uh, rounds at Soto, Ethiopia, and I got really kind of annoyed. I was there as the visiting professor. You know, Don't they understand how important I am? I was there as a, as a visiting professor, and this guy kept disappearing from rounds. And it irritated because we'd ask on his patient. He wasn't there. And so when he got done, he, he came up, and I said, you know, listen, so-and-so, I'm, I'm – not, wasn't real happy about you not being on rounds. He said, I'm so sorry. He says, but I led six people to the Lord on rounds. <laughs> oh, okay, well. <laughs> we'll let it go this time. All right. <laughs> Any other? Yes, ma'am. How many female surgeons do you have working with you? What are the cultural differences? Um, we have uh, Carol Spears, who's at um, Tenwick. Uh, Joy Draper's in the crowd. She's going to be joining uh, at that group. We have... Um, Stephanie Hale, who's an OBGYN in uh, Soto, and uh, we have one that's actually on the World Medical that was working with us, uh, who's now in Angola. Uh, we want her back badly. We've got a couple in there. Uh, there is definitely a cultural problem, and some of the North American women have really struggled with the rampant sexism within African culture. Okay, um, Some of them have just been tough and nails and, and survived as well, but it's a problem at times. Uh, you, if you will cry into your pillow on occasion, and yet it, it can be done. And it's a matter of gaining the respect and being good at what you do, and, and it can be done. But I'd, I'd lie to you if, if I said it isn't an issue. 
Yes. No, largely because none of our hospitals have nurses good enough to do the critical care. Okay, uh, we'd love to. But that's you know we've got a couple of hospitals that are sneaking in that direction, and it's clearly something that needs to be done. Uh, but one of the issues that you get into uh, for an African culture is the cost of critical care can absolutely bankrupt an entire family or village, and so they often make that decision for us, not us. Yes, sir. Is there an organization like this on any other continent that you know of, South America, Asia? No. Not that uh, there's a few family practices that are kind of doing a few sporadic things. Uh, the only internal medicine one I know is at Mbingo Baptist. Uh, they've got a booth downstairs. Go talk to them if you're interested in that. Uh, but I would like there to be. One of the things I would like to be, for example, is a similar thing for nursing school uh, where they kind of get together and share their knowledge and, and find out what works and so forth. But no, I'd like it to be. Yes, sir. Um, one thing that particularly is, uh, as you're a medical student or in a residency, signing up for the residency review committee, all those horrible meetings where everybody's you know, bored to death, uh, that's helpful. Uh, Any time that there is a course coming along about uh, education, uh, proper you know, techniques, uh, sign for that. They're so thrilled to have everybody go, usually they'll pay for it for you. Um, looking for those kind of opportunities, making, making sure that your experience is as broad as you can possibly get it. Uh, maybe uh, if there's any way you can squeeze in one of the tropical medicine courses under your training programs, things like that. Yes, Bob. Yeah, um, I think it's a phenomenal thing. One of the problems, uh, or one of the things that everybody knows about, about the post-residency training program, World Medical Mission has a two-year program that they will pay you a stipend, and kind of the goal is to get you prepared, give you a, a jump start into missions. Um, it's a phenomenal program. Uh, we've had several of our people coming through that in, in alignment. We're all in favor of it. Um, I don't know what else to say except it's a great program, and they agree with it. They'd love to get more and more people because uh, their goal is to pe keep people there long term. One nice thing about training is you don't get burned out as badly, and so uh, you don't have to take as much call in the middle of the night, all the other things, because there's all these other eager people to do that, and so it helps. Do you feel like the people participating in that program uh, get a little broader training and subspecialties while they're there, so that they get some skills they wouldn't normally get in their education program here? Well, it depends on where they train, but yes, that's a true statement. Yeah. Yeah. Where they train overseas and where they train here. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's time. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, I'll be hanging around the PAX booth all weekend. If there's anything else, please come by and um, give me a holler, and then we'll got to discuss lots of things I don't know. Okay? Thanks. <laughs> Sure. Sure.